Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 270. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Today, back with an old friend, Jeff Shaw from Bellingham BJJ. How's it going, Jeff? Everything is awesome all the time, Steve. Thanks for having me back. I am glad to have you. Now, probably a good idea to do a quick intro. It's been a while since the last time you've been on, and if I recall correctly, I think the last time you were here, it was April Fool's Day, and we were trying to misinform everyone and convince them pro wrestling is the best base for BJJ. Does that sound about right? Sounds exactly right. In fact, one of my purple belts still believes this authentically with no irony whatsoever. Well, that's good. Does he try to hit everyone in the gym with Boston crabs and figure four leg locks? How does that pan out in practice? It's more sort of all Japan style, but uh, dude's really good. When you come down and visit us, I'll have you guys uh, do a Thunderdome and we'll have turtle against pro wrestling. If he's doing all Japan style, I am not going to roll with the man. He's going to dump me on my head. I know how this goes. Not going to do the uh, the Antonio Inoki versus the great Antonio. <laughs> we might be getting a little bit off the uh, off the rails here, although some people might disagree. I mean, I would love to do a whole episode again on pro wrestling. But yeah, give yourself a quick intro. I mean, longtime listeners, of course, will know who you are. But for those who are maybe newer in the last year or so, tell everyone all about yourself. Yeah. What's up, y'all? My name is Jeff Shaw. I'm a black belt in jujitsu. Got my black belt. Uh, a little more than four years ago, I own a school called Bellingham BJJ. It's in Bellingham, Washington, and uh, have trained all forms of jiu-jitsu for a long time. We've tried to do really well-rounded, good, solid, fundamental jiu-jitsu that works in all aspects from self-defense to sport. I've competed a lot. I've competed more than 270 competition matches. And so I was not the best competitor, but I did a lot of competitions and really believe in it. And just really, I uh, love the approach that y'all take at BJJ Mental Models in terms of making sure that we optimize our training because we should all try and be 1% better all the time. We should all try to make the students behind us better than we were faster. And I'm excited to be on this journey with y'all. I love how the marketing pitch is, hey, I may not be the best competitor, but I am the most competitor. Hey, you know, in America, quantity is job one. Absolutely. Quality is like 3.5. <laughs> well, hey, something I wanted to get your advice on here today as we unpack a topic, I wanted to talk about something that we've talked about on the podcast many times, but we've never done a dedicated chat on. It's something that I call the three joint rule for those who aren't familiar with it on the BJJ Mental Models website. We've got this gigantic database of uh, mental models for jujitsu kind of organized out by category. And the three joint rule is one of the ways that I like to explain how you can control someone else's limb, be it their arm or their leg, or you can flip it around the other way and use the same logic to prevent someone from controlling your limb. 
Now, I don't know if everyone uses the same terminology as me here, but we all do have similar arms and legs to some extent. So I know that we were talking about this and you mentioned that you've got kind of a similar framework for looking at things. So if it's all right with you, maybe I'll I'll kick it off and kind of explain my thoughts on this concept and then you can riff off of it. Sound good? Go for it. Okay. So longtime listeners will have heard on some of our old mechanics episodes where we kind of broke down the nuts and bolts of things. You might've heard me talk about this thing we call the three joint rule. Again, there's a whole article about it on the website, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. But the idea is basically this human beings, you know, we've got arms and legs that have three major joints each. If you think of your arm, you've got your shoulder, you've got your elbow, you've got your wrist. If you think of your leg, you've got your hip, you've got your knee, you've got your ankle. And that's a a lot of adaptability that we have in our joints. It's actually quite amazing how good human beings are at staying upright and balancing on two legs. Most animals need four legs to (laughs) keep the kind of balance that we can on two. And part of what makes that work is just that we have really good balance with what we've got. And our limbs are very good at adapting to unusual motions. The example I often give is if I walk up to someone and I push them, their legs are going to adjust and rebalance themselves so that they don't fall over, probably without the person even realizing that they're doing it. And that's part of what makes takedown so hard, right? It's very hard to just push someone over and knock them over. So we need to use these uh, relatively tricky setups from both judo and wrestling that require a more sophisticated degree of control. And that's where the three joint rule comes into play. It teaches us if you want to control someone's arm or their leg for whatever purpose, whether it be control, passing, submission, you need to start immobilizing those joints. So for example, if you take an arm, you think of an arm bar to really arm bar someone effectively, I need to be able to control and lock all three of those joints. I can't arm bar someone effectively if I'm only controlling their wrist, obviously. But even if I'm controlling their wrist and their elbow, that's a good degree of control. However, there's still ways that people can get out. You can hitchhike to get out. You can bridge up to get out. And to prevent that, if you're trying to armbar someone, you need to control their shoulder as well. So I found this to be a really helpful way to think about how to troubleshoot my techniques and especially my submissions, how to figure out why they weren't working and people were escaping. And I'm always asking myself, when I'm trying to control someone's limb, do I have control of at least two of those joints? So as an example, Aikido wrist locks, right? They get a lot of grief because they don't really work. Part of the reason they don't really work is because you're only controlling one joint with those. You're you're grabbing the wrist and trying to flip someone over. That's very hard to do because if I try to grab your wrist for leverage, even if I can lock your wrist, you've still got two other major joints that you can bend and flex to take the pressure off and change the angle. But as soon as I grab two joints, like I grab your wrist and your elbow, that's an arm drag right there, right? And now it gets way more effective. Now, once I've got two joints under control, I can start to really move you. And if I want to submit someone, probably I'm going to need to be able to lock all three of those joints. Ultimately, if I am only controlling two of those, there's probably going to be an escape that people can use. Again, going back to the arm bar, if I'm failing to properly control your shoulder, you have the hitchhiker escape at your disposal. You've got some other things because you can rotate. So that's kind of how I think of this concept that I call the three joint rule. I always tell people, if you've got two joints controlled, you can probably get some techniques off. If you've got three joints controlled, you can probably get a submission off, but there are precious few examples in jujitsu where you can get much done if you've only got one joint controlled. And I find that very helpful for white belts, especially who have a tendency to, you know, grab the end of the lever like a foot or a hand, but then not realize that that's not enough control there. So that's the three joint rule in a nutshell. I hope that was a good explanation. 
Uh, sorry for the rant, but it's just been a while, so bringing everyone up to speed. Maybe, Jeff, uh, go ahead and kind of riff on that. Tell me your thoughts on this and if, it's, uh, if it aligns with the way that you instruct your students as well. So that's a terrific explanation. And before I get into my riff on this specific concept, I think there are two really important ideas I want to get across. The first is that jujitsu techniques are made up of concepts and details. So uh, you can ask a black belt, you can ask 10 different black belts to show you an arm bar. You'll see 10 different arm bars and they'll all be correct because they'll all have the same underlying concepts. And we may do those things differently, but the concepts will, will still be there. The same is true for the explanation of jujitsu techniques. Those have concepts and details too. And so before I met you, I'd never heard it called the three joint rule, but of course, like different black belts are going to explain these concepts in different ways. And so that's why I think it's really important uh, to learn from multiple instructors, because the way you explain something may resonate better with some of my students than the way I explain it and vice versa, right? Just the way we explain things. It's why if our purpose is to transmit knowledge and to get better at this, which we should, because we love it and we spend a lot of time, money and financial and as well as physical resources on it then we should always always try to get better as, as much as we can and to help those that came along. And so we're made up of concepts and details, right? Both technique and the teaching of the technique. The second idea that I want to get across is you should always try to optimize your training and your technique to do it the best way you can, the best possible way you can. But you should also recognize that some things are so powerful, they can work even if they're not optimized. And I think a lot of what your examples that you used are perfect explanations, right? Because ideally, the purpose of jujitsu is positional control leading inevitably to submission. I go along my positional ladder, I get to a spot where I can immobilize you and submit you, and I do it, right? But you mentioned the Aikido wrist lock, which I think is a terrific example, both of the general concept and the way that I explain it, right? Where someone grabs your wrist and bends it the wrong way, uh, you're probably not going to let your wrist break. You're probably going to go with the flow. And usually, you know, you're going to move your body in order to compensate so that your wrist doesn't break. Now, from a jujitsu perspective, we're, we're trying to control the people and immobilize them and submit them. That didn't work, right? We didn't do what we wanted to do. But nevertheless, it provoked a response. Now, to think similarly of your concept, of your, your example of the white belt who just like grabs the foot and tugs on it real hard. Now, that's definitely not, not the optimal way to do a technique. Just like grabbing someone's neck and tugging on it is not the optimal way to do, do a rear naked choke. But we also have to recognize that suboptimal things can work if they're done with enough physical force and enough speed and power. In jujitsu, our whole philosophy, or at least my whole philosophy, is uh, we should be as efficient as possible when applying effective technique. Because we always want to assume our opponent is bigger, stronger, more physically adept, more aggressive, in better shape, maybe younger. Because if we're going to keep doing this, and I hope to do this until I die, my technique, I'm not going to be able to just grab somebody's foot and rip on it and have them tap. Even if some a 23-year-old college wrestler on steroids might be able to do that. And so that's why it's important to learn stuff like this three-joint rule. And because you know, you're not going to be 23 years old forever. And having amazing optimal technique as a young person, just as having beautiful little person jujitsu as a big person makes you more dangerous, having optimal old guy jujitsu, you know, as Mike Mahaffey might say, you can do that as a young person, but it can also age with you. So the way I explain, and so I love the three joint rule. I plan on stealing it. Good artists borrow, great joint artists steal. The way I typically explain it to my folks is in order to lock a joint, you must isolate the joint above the joint. So to take on your perfect examples of wrist locks and arm bars, if you try to bend somebody's wrist the wrong way, they're not just going to let it break. But if you have control of their elbow, now we have arm drag and we have wrist lock. And which gets me at another concept, which is we ladder up to submitting. You know, in the three joint rule, you talk about how if you're going to control and dominate a limb, you should dominate and control two of those joints. 
if you're trying to submit someone, you probably need to have at least some measure of control over all three. Now, the, these things are not binary, right? Binaries are boring and usually are inaccurate. It's usually more of a spectrum. But if you were to perform the platonic ideal of an arm bar, you would isolate the shoulder. You would have that elbow immobilized and you would have a fur grip on their wrist. So neither of the two escapes you mentioned work. So when we ladder up to that, right, we don't just jump to that. I always think of a pyramid, right, where we build the positional foundation. And maybe the first time we try our arm bar, we didn't see the opportunity for it. Then as we train, we see the opportunity, maybe the moment is lost. And the third time you get a hold of their arm or however long it takes you, but it doesn't work because you only have one of the three joints. And then sometimes if you get to the standard arm bar position that we think of as the standard arm bar position where I have my legs across your face, I have your elbow behind my hips, and I have you in an ability where I can bend your arm the wrong way, sometimes you're still not going to get the tap either because they defended or because we didn't understand these concepts. And that's still a huge win for you as a jujitsu practitioner because you've gotten way better from the time that you didn't even recognize the move, right? So you get to the move. And even if you don't submit them at first, that's where we can understand this intellectual concept of the three-joint rule. But as you know, you don't just hear the French language and then speak French. You know, you don't read a book about chemistry and become a chemist. Then there comes the physical application of it. And so I find that the repetition and sort of understanding that uh, in order to get this joint, we have to lock the joint above the joint. If we're trying to control a limb, we need two joints controlled if we're trying to submit based on a knee bar a footlock, a toehold, then we need, we probably need to pin the hip in addition to the knee and isolate the ankle. Great insights there. And something that you touched on, which I want to elaborate on a bit is you're right. We can talk about things like the three joint rule and the right way to control a limb. But at the end of the day, does that mean it's impossible to get the job done with just one joint? No, it, it's not right. We've all had this happen where we just get caught sleeping and someone just grabs our wrist and bends it backwards. You know, they have no control, but we still have to tap because they caught us off guard, right? It is possible to just grab the single joint like a wrist and just bend it and just try to inflict so much damage, even without control, that you force the person to tap or you just straight up break something and they have to give up or fight the rest of the match with an injury, right? So it is possible to do these techniques with a, a single joint. So you never want to sleep on it. If someone is controlling a joint, it is possible that bad things can happen. But the point is that if someone only has a single joint, their ability to control that limb is really minimized. So kind of the only chance they've got is to either do some sort of flash submission where they attempt to apply so much damage that you're forced to give up or something just straight up breaks or alternately you climb the ladder, like you said, and you start trying to grab that second joint and establish it. So that is an important thing to understand. I mean, we don't want people to sleep on this and just think, oh, this guy's got my wrist. There's no problem because of the three joint rule. You know, it is still possible to do flash damage against someone with a single joint, but against a good person, their skill is going to be high enough that if you try that, it's probably not going to work unless you just catch them on a really bad day, catch them off guard. It's just not easily reproducible, and so therefore it's not a very reliable tactic. And that's why things like the three-joint rule are more important, because it emphasizes control over flash damage. That's exactly right. And this is what makes jujitsu beautiful to me, because everything you don't get on the front end of the move with technique or skill, you have to make up on the back end with force. And we've all seen in jujitsu competitions in MMA, maybe with certain bad training partners, people do really 
bad submissions that nevertheless work. That's not what we're going for though, right? Because we're, we're into sustained excellence. You know, I'm not trying to be the guy that got a quick flash footlock and then everybody talks about that for the next 20 years. I'm trying to be the dude that has the move that's going to work when I'm 60 years old or when I'm sick or when I'm dealing with a person who's 150 pounds heavier than me. And so, but I do think in jujitsu too, we forget about the flash submission because that's more of a catch wrestling thing, right? That's why they call submissions catches. You just catch it and, and rip it. It's really bad for, you know, long-term training, having both training partners that will train with you as well as your own physical integrity, as well as it being successful over the long run because nobody is super strong and athletic forever, even if you're super strong and athletic now. But I just think that it's important to remind ourselves of both parts of this, right? That in my own practice, in my own training, I'm constantly trying to refine my technique by finding both concepts like this three-joint rule and refinements for the details for how I actually control those three joints, right? Because the things that nest under that concept, okay, I know I have to isolate these joints. I know I have to control them. Obviously, there's different methodology that you can do depending on which joint you're talking about. There's also substantial physical variance. And so constantly refining that technique is always going to pay dividends in the, in the long run. And the flip side of that is always reminding yourself that if you're like, we have a new person at the gym who's uh, 300 pounds of solid muscle. He not only wrestled in high school and college, but also did um, strongman competitions like those Magnus for Magnuson flipping tractor tires and stuff. And if that dude gets a hold of my foot, I'm not going to say I'm fine. He doesn't have control of my knee or my hip. Right. And I think that most people that are listening to this podcast understand that. But I do think just as these are things that we constantly need to remind themselves that just that rules are, you know, fine. But when I, I always tell my folks when I'm teaching a class, if I tell you always or never, I want you to hear 98% of the time. You know, there's exceptions to everything. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we can sit here and talk about how single joint submissions are hard to do. But I absolutely have had people estima lock me, right? I mean, that's usually done as a single joint submission. People just lock your ankle. And the goal is they try to put on so much braking pressure so fast that you don't have time to deal with it. And it absolutely does work. I mean, it's a Braulio estima te technique, right? I'm not going to say that that guy doesn't know jujitsu. So these things are valid strategies. But most of the time, if you want to go for what's reliable and predictable, control usually beats flash damage, right? It's easier to do damage if you have control. Whereas if you don't have control, it becomes a game of opportunity and rolling the dice. And sometimes those opportunities will present themselves. Sometimes people will just do something real dumb and you might as well take it. But a lot of the time, especially against good people, jujitsu becomes a game of probabilities and you don't want to chase the dice roll flash damage attack when you can go for something more reliable, predictable, and reproducible. Everything about that, I 100% agree with. And the thing I want to lift up out of that is that jujitsu is a game of probabilities, right? There are certain low percentage moves. There's a reason we instructors classify things as high percentage and low percentage. I'm not trying to say it's impossible, right? But if you didn't make something happen on the front end of this technique, there are certain people with enough force or casual disregard for their partner's well-being, they can make it happen. That doesn't mean that's the optimal practice. And this is where I think gym culture also becomes a rule. Because you mentioned the esteem lock, which is basically a reverse total. And it's one of the moves. I haven't seen hard numbers on this, but it's the leg lock that I think hurts the most people, like most regularly, because you have to get it as a quick hitter. A heel hook, right? Depending on the heel hook, you can isolate. You know, Sean Applegate talks about this a lot, and he'd be a great guest on the podcast sometime if you haven't had him. But the theory behind leg locks is you sweep, isolate, and then break, and breaking being the last part. And so 
if you were to get to someone a single leg X, right? A position where you basically operationalize the three joint rule, right? We wrap the ankle, we pin the knee by pinching our own knees together. We have control of the hip with our feet and our knee. Then we sweep from that guard and then we attack the leg however you want to attack the leg. So we've already swept and isolated. Our leg position helps us pin them so that we can then just attack. And those types of breaks can be applied, whether it's a heel hook or a straight ankle lock, slowly and with control because of the pin, because you've observed the three joint rule, because my dude isn't going anywhere and I can slowly, carefully, and also inevitably drop pressure. Something like an esteem lock, and it's a totally legit move, right? An amazing move. It's inherently more dangerous just because if you're going to hit it, you have to hit it hard and fast. And you know that's not, of course, that's not 100% like anything else either. There are people that can apply it slowly and with control. But if you see it hit in a competition, generally people are not trying to apply it slowly and with control. And and that's just the nature of a, of a catch submission uh, versus something else. But like for most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, most of us are not. You know, some of us are elite competitors, high folks, uh, but most of us are not. Most of us are people that are trying to do this in a way that is intelligent, sustainable, something we can do for a long time, something we can apply on our training partners that are better than us that are younger than us, that are stronger than us, something that we can keep doing. And if you're getting the esteem lock now, amazing. I'm super glad for you. Like, I love the move. I do the move. But are you going to be 60 years old and esteem locking a college wrestler? You're probably not. Yeah. And moves like that also tend to be moves that are incredibly effective against someone who's not used to them. But I mean, if you've got a buddy in training who loves esteem locks, a lot of the time what happens is they'll get you once with it. But after that, you just don't give them the end of your foot anymore because you know they're going to try to do it again. So that's where, again, the predictability of these things kind of drops. And so that's probably part of the reason why you don't see the esteem lock all that often. It's not that it doesn't work, but it is very much a move of opportunity. You kind of, when the person puts their foot in the wrong place, you can go for it. And like you said, it's hard to do that move with control you kind of have to do it with the intent to break something. And that makes it not a great option if you want to keep friends healthy in the gym. Something I also want to elaborate on here is when we talk about the three joint rule, we're saying that you need to control at least two joints if you want to be able to really get do a good job of manipulating a limb. And if you want to submit someone, you probably need to control all three. So people might hear that and they might think, well, does that mean I should never just go for one joint at a time? And my answer is absolutely not. Most techniques and entries are going to start with you controlling one joint because that's all your opponent is going to give you. I mean, as an example, if I'm doing stand up with you, yes, I can just jump right into an arm drag sometimes if I create an opening, but sometimes the best I can do is just grab your sleeve. And that's still better than nothing, right? It's still some degree of leverage. I can move you around if I've got your sleeve. I can control you. I can attack your structure. Now, that said, if I just grab your sleeve, I'm not going to have a tremendous amount of control on you. It's more of an annoyance at that point. So part of what I want to do is I want to climb the ladder. I want to move up, like you said, move up one level. And now I want to go from having control of just their wrist to having their wrist and their elbow. That's where things like an arm drag come into play, right? Similarly, if I'm trying to pass someone's guard, I often can't just jump in and control two joints at once. Sometimes the best I can do is I grab the end of the lever, right? Grab their foot. And then from there, I try to advance and then get that second joint, like get control of a knee as well. And then I can start thinking about things like leg drags. I can start thinking about things like toriandos and stuff. So there are definitely many situations. Maybe it's the most common situation where you have to start by attacking the end of the lever 
And I, again, you will hear great jujitsu instructors all the time talk about go for the end of the lever. That's not a bad thing. It's absolutely good, but you just need to start climbing that ladder after you get that control. Usually, and this again is kind of a white belt mistake. You don't want to get control of one joint and then just be happy with that because the other person still has so much mobility if you're only grabbing their wrist or their ankle. You want to now start trying to climb up to the next level, which would be to also control their knee or their elbow. Everything about that's correct in my view. And I think it illustrates two other really important concepts that I that I talk about all the time. The first is that jujitsu is a game of movement and structure. Movement allows me to create structure. Movement allows me to dismantle your structures. And movement allows me to create superior structures. Think about passing the guard, right? If you have your knee connected to your elbow, if you have your hand frames in place, going to be very difficult for me to pass your guard. And of course, you can counter me with your structure. Now, if I dismantle your structure and just think about you disconnect your elbow from your knee, your arm frames are out of place. Now, suddenly I can move and not only dismantle your structure, but create structures of my own. It's the same for all joint locks. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think it's more common to have control over one part of the joint or one joint on a limb than it is to jump into it. And we can think of these things in terms of good, better, best, right? Would we love to have control of all, of all three or even two joints right away? Absolutely. And you can imagine, and you, we've seen situations where that happens, right? Think about the back step to the saddle when you're passing the guard. Suddenly, even if you don't have grips, right? And you're trying, you go for a knee cut, they give you the opportunity to back step, shelve the leg. Suddenly you grab the end of the lever, but because of your leg pummeling, now you have control over all three joints. And that's great. Or if you pull guard, if you pull guard right into a triangle, something like that, where now suddenly we leap from zero to 60. Amazing, right? If we can do that, absolutely. I would love it. Against an opponent that is similar in skill, it's it's rare, right? It does happen, but it's rare. And so I think the example that you gave of a sleeve grip or in, in nogi, you know, a wrist control or a two-on-one on the end of a wrist, these are great examples of of initiating structural attacks. And the other really important idea I think here is that by initiating those structural attacks, you require a response. If they just don't respond, cool, just keep grappling them and win. But generally speaking, like if I get control of your sleeve and your elbow, you are going to do something. If you don't, cool, uh, let's go get tacos after I submit you. But if you do something, then that response allows me to get deeper into my game because sometimes you'll have to you don't need to take chances if you're not in trouble. But suddenly, if you're in trouble, now you have to do something. I, I lost a match at the Nogi Pans because a dude from Marcelo Garcia's got a really sweet arm drag entry on me. Really, really nice arm drag. And he had my wrist and my elbow. And I was like, I'm going to get taken down. And so what I, and I was a blue belt at the time, so I didn't have as many tools as I have now. Really common and not even an incorrect response to that is to try to rip your arm free, especially Nogi where there's not friction. Problem with that is if you can envision my right arm and he's got grip on my wrist and he's got the, my elbow and I rip my elbow out of there. Okay, awesome. Now my elbow's nowhere near my hip, which means he can enter a single leg, which he did, and take me down, which he did, lost the match 2-0. I would never have let my elbow get that far away from my hip if he hadn't initiated a successful attack on me, which required me to respond, right? And we can apply this principle to joint locks really easily, right? If you're not in trouble, you're not going to put yourself at risk. But if you are in trouble, then you can either just accept 
the inevitable, which most people aren't, won't and shouldn't, or you can take a chance. And that gives the attacker more of opportunities. That is a great example. As we mentioned earlier, a big part of what we're really trying to do in jujitsu is make things predictable and reduce probability, make it so that we have a good idea of what's going to happen next. And if I don't have any control on my opponent, say we're both standing, it's completely neutral, the match has just begun, anything can happen. And that's part of why those open scenarios can be dangerous is because it's very hard for me to predict what my opponent is going to do. But as soon as I get grips on them, even if it's just grabbing the end of their sleeve and getting that wrist grip, at least now I've made a connection and I'm forcing them to react and I'm slicing down the probabilities. Similarly on the bottom, if you're in open guard and you're supine and your feet are up in the air, very hard for me to predict what you're going to do. And that's dangerous for me because it's hard for me to react in time if I don't know what to expect. But as soon as I start grabbing the end of the lever, making contact with your feet, even if it's suboptimal control, I've now closed some of those probabilities off, right? I'm reducing those so that it's now going to be easier for me to figure out what to do next. And then from there, we can start climbing up to get the second joint. And that probably means we're going to get a a pass if you're the person on top and the person on bottom is in guard. So again, a big part of this, and you know, we've said on the podcast so many times, grips dictate position. Whoever wins the grip fight is probably going to get to choose what the next position is. This is exactly one of the main reasons why that is, is because if I have a grip on you, I can start to make your options disappear. I can make you more predictable. That means I can react better because I can tell the future now. I can see what you're probably going to do and I can beat you to the punch. So getting that initial grip control is so important. And that's just something I want to keep driving home is when we talk about the three joint rule, yes, it is true that you need three joints to submit. Yes, it is true that you need two joints for good control and to manipulate someone, but one single joint that still has value, right? It's usually the beginning of the battle, but it's still very important because often whoever wins that fight, that gives them a leg up to winning the next phase. One thing I say all the time, jujitsu should be very simple at first, then get almost unimaginably complex. And then at the end, get very simple again. What I mean is in your first year of training, you should be taught simple concepts that are extremely powerful. Good posture, eyes up, hips forward, elbows tight right? Don't let them control your head, control the inside space with grips. Very simple rules, rules that can be expressed in your one idea as opposed to three ideas. Then as people learn more, and this is what we do with our intro to BJJ, uh, the methodology that we use is we get you to, you know, one thing that you can do from the common positions, right? And you're adhering to those rules, doing that one thing. After that, you learn two things that work in concert, like the hip bump sweep and the Kimura shoulder lock, where If you successfully enter to the hip bump, they must defend or be mounted. They have to put their hand down. If they don't put their hand down, cool, we're in mount. If they do put their hand down, great. There's their arm. They have broken the one simple rule of not keeping your elbow away from the body, but you made them break that rule. And so we go from, we're learning one door to go through to, hey, let's have two doors, the hip bump to the Kimura, the collar choke to the scissor sweep, the single leg X guard sweep to the X guard transition. These simple as we're building these motor memories for our bodies. And then after that, as any, I think anybody will tell you send jujitsu for a while, then jujitsu gets super complicated. You go from, all right, if your posture is up, I try to hip bump you. If your posture is down, I try to choke you. And then you get into things like, okay, well, if I do the deep lasso, I address it one way. If they address it one way, then that gives my decision tree three options. And it gets almost unimaginably complex. There are more potential moves in a game of chess than there are atoms in the known universe. But there are way more moves in jiu-jitsu than there are in chess because your body's not like my body. 
Uh, my body's not like uh, my student Andy's body. Uh, we all have different levels of flexibility, strength, age, tendencies. But a knight always moves like a knight. A rook always moves like a rook. And so in the middle period, this is why I honestly think a lot of blue belts quit, is you can either take that level of overwhelm and, and say like, man, I will never have this figured out. Or you can love that and say, yeah, I'll never have this all figured out, but I can take these concepts and then apply them in myriad situations in a way that'll never get boring. And then now that I'm a black belt and now I've taken it back to simplicity where it's like, I keep my eyes up. I keep my hips forward. I keep my elbows tight. I don't let them control my face, you know? And this is why I think honestly, the work that you're doing on this podcast is so valuable for people because those concepts, people sometimes, I think most folks get why simplicity is powerful. Sometimes I see in class, I'm expressing a really simple concept to folks like the three joint rule or like dominate the grips, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, Jeff, I know. And I'm like, okay, but if you internalize this now and you put in the work to really understand those concepts, then by the time you've done jujitsu quite a long time, like, you know, you can, then suddenly you've got the capacity to create real poetry with your body. And, and that I think is something that's really awesome. You know, I love that notion of kind of a reverse U-curve that you brought up there where things at the beginning of your journey seem simple and then they get just unfathomably complex and then part of your job is to make them simple again. And that jives with something that I have definitely realized recently. I mean, every time I see a post on Reddit where people are just obsessing about technical minutia at just a very, very microscopic level, I always think to myself, is this person a purple belt? And then I go and I check. And without fail, it's always a purple belt because that's part of that journey, right? You've gotten past the initial simplicity. You have now, you're starting to understand how large and vast the ocean is. And in your enthusiasm, you're trying to just take on more and more and more. And then at some point in your journey, that just becomes overwhelming. And you realize I can't do this. I can't grapple if I need to be memorizing a hundred thousand tiny details in my head at all times. How can I slice through this and make this simpler? I mean, that's a big foundation of Rob Bernanke's work at BJJ Concepts, talking about how a very common mistake is people come in thinking that this is a game of technique hunting. If I just knew more, I would be better. But a big part of the journey from purple to brown belt, and then especially brown belt to black belt is doing some mental housekeeping and trying to throw out the stuff that actually was a waste of time to learn and recontextualize the stuff you want to keep to make it simpler. So instead of memorizing 30 different techniques, you just memorize one concept. Like you said, I mean, fuck, keep your elbows tight. You do that. You're going to be immediately better at jujitsu overnight. I can show you like some advanced Delahiva sweep that maybe, you know, you'll use once or twice a year. That's probably not going to make you great at jujitsu, but I can tell you a concept that impacts 30 other things that you do on the regular, that's going to be much more effective, not just because of the, the value ratio there, but also because simple things are easier to apply, right? Simple ideas are easier to execute, especially in a high pressure, time sensitive scenario where homie is sitting on you trying to choke you unconscious. I tell folks all the time, particularly my new competitors, we have like a, a new bunch of competitors that are going to compete next month. I always tell them, I would rather have you go out there and adhere to really good fundamental concepts and compete well and do everything right and lose, then I would have you get good feedback from a bad process. Because we've all seen, and this is honestly why I think a lot of folks fell in love with leg locks before leg lock methodology was well understood, is that you could tap somebody that was better than you if it's a move they've never seen before. And it's like, okay, but that's not sustainable, right? And you got this one cool gimmicky foot lock on a higher rank. Okay, awesome. That'll never happen again. And now because you, that made you feel good, now you might be going after this candy, 
which, which is fun, right? Rather, it's fun to learn like 20 ways to pass the lasso guard, but that's the dessert, not the meal. And one of the things that, that I always emphasize is like paying attention to that stuff over the long run is what's going to create sustainable success. And this relates also to a concept you brought up earlier, which is that of predictability, right? If you have a situation where you and me are standing on our feet, we each have almost unlimited options, right? Or if you're a good guard player and you're in a supine position with your feet up, you have myriad options. And you mentioned this in a concept of grappling or in the context of grappling. I think it also applies in learning where we want to constrain their options, right? Where if I turn your hips one way, suddenly your options are super limited and you can still fight back. But now I know, okay, well, he's not going to do this particular technique, right? If I close off, this is why grips are so important too, right? Like if I get your sleeve and I know you can't post on this, that side, or you can't grip me on that side. Okay. A huge swath of variables has just come out of the equation and it's less stuff that I have to deal with. And the other thing too is I don't, so that's why, you know, this, these types of fundamentals are so important. I do feel like it's important to say too, that I don't ever want to yuck anybody's yum. And I don't shit on the blue and purple belts that want to learn the cool moves because I was one of those dudes too. And it was fun. And you know what? Fun is important. And this is something you put a lot of yourself into and you love it. And if you, if it fires you up to go out and learn you know, six ways into the saddle, dude, I think that's amazing. Anything that keeps people excited and learning and growing, I think they're going to continue to grow in those concepts anyway. And we can look back on it. Like I can look back on it now and sort of like both acknowledge that I really enjoyed that and I'm glad I did it. And I got a lot, a lot out of it and I would do it differently now too. I can acknowledge both of those things, but like, I think it's terrific that folks, because that, that for one thing, that's the way the art grows and the way that we all understand this vastly complex and amazing thing a little bit better is to have people experiment and learn new stuff. But it's also, I am just pro fun. And with that, I, there's one anecdote I want to mention from my own Purple Belt days uh, that I think illustrates this sort of concept and sort of the difference between me as a Purple Belt and me as a Black Belt that maybe is valuable for people. So I got to take a seminar with Andre Galvao. And it was still one of the best seminars I've been to. I still do a lot of the stuff that Galvao showed. He was, he's a great instructor and he was showing advanced outside hook guard techniques. And this is part of where I learned some of the Oval Plata stuff that I still use today. And so he was showing how using your outside hook guard in conjunction with either a same side sleeve grip or a cross sleeve grip in order to create opportunities for sweep and submission, right? And so he showed four moves that day and three of them were what we would call fundamental or advanced basics, right? Triangle, an old plata, tripod sweep. And in those three things, which are on most Jim's blue belt curriculums, he showed really, really beautiful details for dismantling people's fundamental structures. Here's how you get their elbow away from their knee. Here's how you get hip exposure. So you can put your foot on their hip, make them bend over so that their posture is broken. Here's how you get your knee into this place to like break this wedge. You know, like I said, these are made up of concepts and techniques are made up of concepts and details. And he showed rock solid fundamentals on how to do these techniques at a high level and really beautiful details for how to make it happen. And I still use that stuff, all of that stuff, all that blue belt jujitsu. I use it today. The fourth move he showed was the coolest rolling bow and arrow choke I've ever seen in my life. It was gangster. I mean, it, and like, I would show it to you today, but I won't. And I'll tell you why, because I went home and I showed it to my instructor and my instructor was like, you're never going to hit that on anybody. And I was like, but no man. And I don't even think it was a physical attributes thing. Although Galvao was obviously more physically impressive than me. If you've ever met me in person. 
But it was just, this is a kind of camp move that you can either do to someone whose skill level is divergent from yours and you could have, could have done kind of anything to them anyway, or someone whose physical abilities are so below yours. And it's one of those things that is super fun at an open mat or like if you're rolling with a buddy and you're kind of like clowning, you're like, let me do some matrix stuff. It's an awesome move. And as a purple belt, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And now as a black belt, I'm like, I do all of those first three moves like every day still. Yeah, that is actually a good point. It, even if at an advanced level, you might not be using all of those techniques, we still need to be grateful that the junior people are studying them. I mean, this is a parallel I see in the work world as well as in jujitsu. So as an example, on the job, when I was younger, I work in tech, right? I used to spend a ton of time studying every weird, obscure technology I could. I mean, just an, a ton of time just researching stuff, a lot of which wound up being dead ends. I'm older now. I don't have the time to do that. I've got more responsibilities, but I still am so grateful for the people who are 10 or 20 years younger than me who do spend their time doing that stuff because that propagates up to me, right? They can go off and explore all of the branches of the tree and figure out which ones have merit and which ones are dead ends. And I can learn from that and it saves me time. And if we didn't have all of these blue and purple belts practicing crazy stuff, I think it would really slow down the innovation of the art because a lot of that stuff would not trickle up to the black belts. I think that people don't understand how important it is for a black belt to be surrounded by really enthusiastic blue belts and purple belts who have the time and inclination to study every weird little thing. And it's very much the same in jujitsu. I mean, I'm a hobbyist, right? I don't train that much, honestly, and I don't have the time and I, I'm not willing to invest the time to spend hours and hours every day studying the meta and watching instructionals. But thank goodness I'm surrounded by enthusiastic junior belts because I can kind of use them as a litmus test, right? They go off and study that stuff and they try it on me. If I can shut it down without even trying, I know that it's probably not a great use of my time to go and study it myself. But if all of a sudden purple belt is catching me with something I've never seen before and they can do it more than once, that's a strong indication to me that they're onto something. And that helps me as the senior belt know that this merits study. So it saves my time. So, I mean, it's always fun to make fun of just how enthusiastic purple belts especially get when it comes to going down the rabbit hole. But on the other hand, as a senior belt, you have to be grateful for those people doing the work for you because we all benefit from what they find. Dude, that is so important. And I think every instructor should. And I think most good instructors do recognize that. Certainly all the best ones I know do. I will say definitively, the blue through brown belts at my gym, and of course the black belts as well, make me so much better. Not just in as a practitioner and people that they show me stuff that I wouldn't otherwise recognize. They do things to me that I would not have thought of doing, which forces me to grow and makes me better on the mats myself. But they also make me a better instructor because they make me consider things that I haven't considered before, not just the ideas but also how to explain those ideas and translate them to a broader audience. Cause everybody has a different way of explaining things. And like, we have so many great dudes and ladies and non-binary folks at my gym that just kick so much ass. And I'm so proud of them. And I, look, I do this full time and we were open two thirds of last year. We're only closed like eight hours a day. We have like seven jujitsu classes a day. Now it's crazy. And, and it's amazing. So I'm on the mats all the time. And I'm on the mats all the time and just being around is why I never want to like, I never want to squash anybody's enthusiasm anyway, because you never know what's going to come of enthusiasm. But just speaking from my own anecdotal experience, watching, like just being around the young folks and watching what they do, like it's inspiring for me. It makes me a better instructor and it makes me better on the mats myself. So I'm super grateful for it. So 
all you purple belts trying weird shit, keep trying the weird shit. And I say that half tongue in cheek. One thing I want to shout out Jake Whitfield here for a second. And this is actually something I think really helped me as a blue and purple belt. So thank you, Jake. And I hope this helps some of y'all as well. They're at the stage on the journey. So I trained in the Hoist Gracie Network for most of my career, which is a uh, very self-defense and fight oriented, but I loved sport jujitsu from day one. I love all jujitsu. If it's jujitsu, I love it. Self-defense, sport, gi, no gi, strikes, no strikes. I want to learn it all. I want to know it all. It's awesome. And so I was a an avid competitor when a lot of folks in the network were not. It just wasn't prioritized as much. And so when you do self-defense jujitsu, it's of necessity more fundamental just because the slate of techniques narrows when there are strikes involved that are that are viable. But then you go and do sport competitions and there's all sorts of fun, exciting stuff that you can do, which I think is part of the beauty of it and part of why I love sport, sport jujitsu so much. And so around 2010, I started doing Barambolo. And, you know, love Rafael Mendez, still a huge fan of Rafael and Rafa and Guy Mendez, the Mendez brothers just, you know, were some of the best competitors ever now are some of the best coaches. And, uh, so I started doing Barambolo and it wasn't super common in my area at that time. And so I had some success and I kept working and it became like a really central part of my game at blue and purple. And so a lot of my instructors were very old school and did not like the Barambolo at all. And were not shy about telling me. And like Jake, who is still like one of like my most important mentors and like has made me better for 14 years. And so, so he, he gave me this advice and I, I, after a conversation we had, and I'm really grateful, Jake said, Hey, look, as a coach of yours, I always want to pull you back to the basics. And I'm like, yeah, Jake, but I'm, I'm at these competitions and people do Barambolo. I need to learn this. I learn need to do this intricate system both to defend it. And because I've had a lot of success with it myself. So this is a game that I'm really interested in playing. And I know it's kind of like now in 2024, it's not the modern weird stuff anymore. It's not the meta anymore. But back then it was like the cut this cutting edge jujitsu or so-called. And so I was like, and plus like, look, man, I said to Jake, honestly, I was like, look, it's fun. Love spinning underneath people and taking their back. I love like getting inverted. And and Jake says, look, in the long run, you're not going to probably be doing this. And he was right. Like, I, it's rare that I do it anymore at the age I'm at. And he's like, but yeah, fun's important. So he's like, how many weeks do you train? Five, how, how many days a week do you train? Like five days a week? I'm like, I train like seven days a week, but okay, let's say it's five. He's like, okay, if, if you train five days a week, give yourself one day where you just do the fun stuff. And he's like, 20% of your training, like, you know, if you're training to do the, and everybody has different goals, right? And everybody had, not everybody is going to be a jujitsu lifer. Not everybody's going to do this full time. And so budget your time and your resources to train the way that you want to for your goals. But Jake was like, look, if you want to be a well-rounded jujitsu person, and you know that in the long run, you'll be going back to the fundamentals again and again, but you really like this Barambolo and it's really fun one day a week or like one out of every five days, that's what you do. And so for me that I pass that along for folks that are kind of trying to balance that in their own lives where they're like, Hey, I know this might not be the highest percentage stuff, but I just really enjoy it. Whether that's like, I don't know, lasso guard or whatever the 50, 50, whatever it is. If you're like, yeah, this is just a fun thing for me to play around with assign a time in your training and do that because fun matters. And if you, the other thing about jujitsu that I really like is if you have fun, you keep coming. If you keep coming, you get better. And it's not quite that simple, but it really is kind of that simple. Well, two things I want to expand on that. First of all, on the topic of uh, Jake Whitfield, he is the guy who shared with me one of my favorite pieces of jujitsu advice ever, which is if you're winning, keep winning until you win. Dude, in all seriousness, like Jake is one of the best coaches in the world. 
like bar none. And like, he is one of the most well-rounded and knowledgeable. He's also hilarious as that anecdote tells you, but like Jake is one of the most well-rounded and knowledgeable martial artists that I've ever been around. And he knows jujitsu inside and out. Jake was a successful MMA fighter, did all sorts of stuff, but like whether it's self-defense sport, gi, no gi, that dude, man, you know, he is one of the most underrated sources of jujitsu knowledge in the world, period. Now, another thing I want to expand on what you were talking about there is one of the benefits of the three joint rule is if you apply it to all aspects of your game, you can use it not just to control your opponent, but also to prevent them from controlling you just by doing it backwards. Um, the Barambolo is a great example. I was never taught how to shut down a Barambolo. I don't recall ever going to a class where people said, if someone tries to bolo, you do ABC and you'll be fine. That said, I don't really recall many times when people have successfully been able to bolo me. And a big part of that is because of the three joint rule. Even if you've never seen a bolo before, as soon as someone starts trying to tangle up your leg, you have to realize a few things. First of all, okay, they're getting my ankle. That is the end of the lever. They've got one joint. The next thing they're going to want to do is go for the knee. Right. And so the idea behind a bolo basically is they probably starting from Delaheva or something like that. If they're on the bottom, they try to invert around your leg. And ultimately, what they're trying to do is get control over your knee. If they are able to get control over your knee, you get swept. If they are not able to, nothing happens. And so, what I found to be super helpful was just understanding, and this goes for a lot of uh, leg entanglements as well. If a person is trying to get control of my knee, just don't let them do that because then they can't climb the chain, right? If they grab my ankle, that sucks. That's really annoying. But I have to understand when that happens. The next target is my knee. So what I often do then is as soon as someone goes into something like that, as soon as I feel a hand on my ankle, I squat down, I create an elbow knee connection. I basically connect my elbow to the knee that's being attacked to make the structure a bit stronger so that they can't get that leverage so that it's harder for them to wrap something around the knee. And I've just found just by doing that, it shuts down a significant amount of those attacks because the one thing that all of those climbing the chain leg entanglements have, well, most of them, there's a few exceptions, but normally it is they get the end of the lever, which is the foot. Then they try to get to the knee. They try to sweep you. Then they try to lock the hip and that once they can lock your hip, they can shut down things like your ability to rotate and get up. And that usually means you're going to get heel hooked or leg locked some other way. So if you can shut that down, as soon as you feel someone grabbing your ankle and coming up for the knee, close that hole, right? Connect your elbow to your knee. It's a very simple thing, but it shuts down a lot of that leg entanglement game. And I mean, I'm not really a leg locker personally, but very few people are able to pull that game off successfully on me because I just try to always deny access to my knee because I know if they can get control of my knee, now they've got serious control. It's just a matter of time before they can advance position and get to where they want to go. Man, I think that is absolutely right. I think that the Barambolo and leg locks both really express the three joint rule very accurately. And in a lot of ways, like this is why I use the ladder concept to sort of get across a lot of these techniques. And let's just talk about the Barambolo real briefly as an example of the three joint rule. Like how do most Barambolos, how does the classic Barambolo start? It starts with the outside hook, right? Which some people call the daily Eva hook. You grab their heel and you put in an outside hook. What are you doing? You're controlling their ankle and their knee, two joints, right? If you can maintain that control, stage one, they just don't pass your guard, right? If they never disrupt that control, your guard never gets passed. And you are, in a sense, depending on your objective winning. If they don't disrupt that control, you get to dictate the terms of engagement, all right? So then I always say that with Barambolo, the primary 
victory is putting their hips on the mat. Because if you put their hips on the mat, you won. It's just a question of how complete your victory is, whether you just come up for sweet points, whether you spin under them and try to take the back, whether you try to go for the mount. And all of those little steps up the ladder or steps up the pyramid also reflect the three joint rule. Because if they can escape their knee, suddenly they can escape, right? Just grabbing their heel and their ankle is not going to give me enough control to, you know, making a grown ass adult human stay next to me if they're trying to hip away from me. Hips are more powerful than my grip on your ankle. Conversely, if I keep control over the ankle and the knee, right, whether I choose to spin under for the back or whether I choose, in which case we would keep our grips, once again, hearkening back to your point about grips, then that's when I control the hip. And if I get the hip, I get the back. If I choose to go for the mount from the bare and bolo position, typically you throw the foot over and you put your instep on their far hip. Once again, going ankle, knee, hip. Now, of course, like they're trying to stop you, right? So if they disrupt those two points of connection and suddenly you've just got the ankle, then your victory is not as complete as it could have been, right? So this is why, again, it's a game of movement and structure. If I have an effective outside hook and I sweep, I've won. I've moved the ball down the field, metaphorically speaking. If my opponent then frees their knee and gets away, cool, they've disrupted my structure returned their ability to move, and now the game starts sort of anew. If I continue to dominate those two joints, now I can start to go up the joint ladder, get that third joint, and really get to a position where I, where I can submit them. And so I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the Barambolo as well as the leg lock, it's a perfect example of the three-joint principle. Yeah, especially because it shows what happens if you don't get control of that third joint. I think everyone who's trained um, foot locks for a while has probably experienced this where You can have control of their ankle and their knee, but if you fail to control their hip, there's a few things that can happen. One thing is they can get up and base on that foot that you're attacking, or the other thing is they can rotate, they can roll, and they can do that because you did not secure and control the third joint, which is the hip. Usually the third joint, whether it's your hip or your shoulder, it's going to be about rotation, right? The oftentimes the escape of last resort is to try to rotate or spin out of something That gets enabled when the third joint is not controlled, right? So if you think about some examples, right, you think of like a heel hook. If you are not locking their hip, they have the ability to rotate. If you think of an arm bar, if you're not locking the shoulder, they have the ability to hitchhiker, which is a, a rotation. If you think of the Kimura, you know, you can have a great grip on their elbow and on their wrist, but if you can't also control their shoulder, they can just rotate forever and they might eventually get out. And I mean, you can exploit that too, because that's the Kimura trap game, right? Is you control two joints of the Kimura, and then by forcing them to rotate, you follow them until you land in a position where they can't rotate anymore. So not the end of the world, but it just illustrates the concept. And the funny thing about that third joint, if you want to control someone's uh, hip or if you want to control their shoulder, usually the way you do that is by actually trying to trap the opposing joint. So if I'm trying to control your left hip Probably one of the better ways for me to do that is to try to control your right leg, right? That's something Danaher calls double trouble. And the reason why that matters is because when your last resort is that final joint, whether it be the hip or the shoulder, that's the only thing you have left to defend. Usually the way you're going to defend is by trying to rotate your body. And if I'm controlling both of your legs, you can't rotate, right? Similarly, if I'm controlling both of your arms, you can't rotate. So what you'll often find when you're trying to lock that third joint is the best way to do it is to try to control the other leg or the other arm, 
right? That's why in a lot of leg locks, right, when you're trying to set up leg control, you actually grab onto and try to control the far leg too and bundle them because that way the person can't rotate. It's the same reason why when you try to arm bar someone, pinching behind their far shoulder is super important because that's actually how you control their near shoulder. If you don't pinch behind the far shoulder, they can rotate out all day. So kind of one of those funny things that uh, Danaher has kind of clued onto, that double trouble idea of when you're attacking that third joint, the whether it be the hip or the shoulder, it's actually controlling the other arm or the other leg that gives you that ability to do it. Let's talk about another aspect of this too, because I think that's super important. And understanding like that leap from controlling two joints to controlling three and the leap from control to finish is really important. And we've talked mostly about the technical issues of that, which which I think are super important, right? And understanding the control of rotation, the isolation, all of those principles. Let's talk about tactical issues really quickly, because I think this is an important aspect of, of it for people, especially competitors. And so if everybody wants to finish, right? And everybody wants to finish like both submissions and you want to finish moves like guard passes, right? Everybody who's listening to this, think about the time when you were training and you really wanted to pass your partner's guard or you really wanted to submit them. And maybe you had two out of three, right? And if you're hungry for that that finish, a lot of times you start to go super hard because there's that. And this is where tactical considerations really play into it because this is where a lot of counter fighters are, are super successful. I just trained with Jerry Shapiro, Jay Schaap, who's a great coach down in Vegas, and he has tremendous side control escapes. And a big part of the way he'll control, he'll escape is he'll keep his hand frames in, stop you from controlling his face and let you as you, because in order to pass, like we're not talking about submissions here in terms of the three joint rule, but if you're doing a knee cut pass, got to get past the foot, got to get past the knee and you got to get past the hip. If you get past the first two, a lot of times that's where you'll see the scurrying, scrambling of people trying desperately, working hard to finish the pass. And if you can, great. But if the defender still has that same line of defense, I'll apply this to arm bars in a second too. If we don't have that leap from the second limb control or second joint control to the third joint control, there's an opportunity for counterattack. Because if we get too hungry, go too hard, then we can expose ourselves and frustrated people and people that are that are tired make mistakes, right? Which is why you see this thing happen to really awesome athletes in jujitsu matches or really great practitioners during roles. Similarly, right? Think about the example you used for the three joint rule. Like one of the ways people escape is the hitchhiker escape. The most common escape to the armbar is the stack escape where you bridge in. But if the attacker fails to control all three of the joints, even if the limb is free and we don't have our other hand defending. You can turn the wrist because we haven't controlled the wrist and hitchhike bridging to get out and actually get on top into a better position than you were before. And so, yes, there's a really important technical aspect of that, right? The, the idea of we need to control two joints to control, to dominate and three joints to submit. But from a tactical perspective of when you're rolling, this is why I always encourage people to roll thoughtfully and to, yes, we should go hard and try to well, but I find often like folks that if you get a little ahead of yourself, I give this advice to a lot of folks that it's who, to whom it's really important to do well in rolling and to do well in competition is that like slow makes smooth, smooth makes fast. And I would rather have you take 10% off the the energy and avoid making mistakes than just be like, I really got to finish this armbar. I really got to finish this pass because that's when details get lost. 
And if you lose the detail of, oh, I didn't control that risk, now he's on top, right? That's where counterattack happens. And I think that's important for both attacker and defender to understand. Now, one more thing I want to do here, I want to call back to earlier in the chat and test people's listening comprehension. It's always important to do because look, I mean, this is a podcast, you know, and I know, Jeff, that the majority of people out there, they're either playing vampire survivors while they listen to this, or they're taking a poop or they're taking a poop while they're playing vampire survivors, right? So their attention is probably sliced in a lot of directions. So you might've heard me if you were paying attention earlier in the podcast, talk about how the Toriando pass is an example of controlling two joints. And a lot of people are going to, if you think about that, you might think, well, what the, how, how is that possible, right? With the Toriando, you're usually grabbing fabric by the knees and that's it. Or maybe depending on how you do it, you're grabbing fabric by the shins or somewhere else on the leg, but you're not explicitly controlling two joints. How is that an example of, of this three joint rule illustrating that you've controlled two joints? And the answer is because controlling a joint does not mean that you have to have your hands on it. Controlling a joint just means that you're preventing your opponent from using it effectively. And there's a few ways that you can do that. One way, the most obvious way, is you literally just grab the joint. So where you often see this is the end of the lever, right? I grab your foot, I grab your wrist. That's usually how I'm going to get control there. But there's other ways. One way is you staple that, that joint to a surface where it can't be used anymore. So an example is in the Toriando pass, right? If, when I am putting my body weight down and I'm punching down on your legs, by virtue of the fact that my weight is coming down, I'm stapling your feet to the floor. I'm also holding your knees in position. So even though I don't actually have my hands physically on your feet, it's still an example of controlling two joints because you can't do anything with your feet at that point. A great example of this that really kind of threw me off for a while was the Kyotera ankle lock. Because if you look at that, you know, if you've ever had anyone do that to you, it's a devastating submission, but it's weird because usually in jujitsu, when you see submissions, you're used to people like coiling their whole body around a limb. So the three joint rule is very visually obvious in terms of what's happening. But with the Kaotera ankle lock, you don't really see it working that way. And what makes that ankle lock work is there's a stomping motion that you put down onto the person's leg, you're holding their ankle and the stomp prevents them. Basically it locks their hip onto the mat. They can't get up. So they're stuck butt down on the ground. They can't get up. And because you've got those two joints controlled and there's pressure coming down, they can't do much with their knee either. So it's interesting because you're controlling all three joints, but it doesn't look like it. Another way to control joints is don't let them connect to anything, right? If you want your joint to be useful, you need to be able to push or pull off of something or grab something. You can make someone's limb or joint useless by just taking it out of the equation. So for example, if I'm trying to pass your guard, if I just hold your feet up in the air and I don't let your feet touch anything, they're just kicking up in the air. Even if I'm not actually physically touching them, I still control them because you can't do anything with them, right? I mean, think of how helpless it feels when someone stack passes you, right? It, it is very, very hard for you to do anything about it, even though they may not actually be touching your feet because your feet are kicking up in the air. And that's why a big way to defend the stack pass is to try to use hip movement to get your feet back in the game and connect with your opponent, right? Because once you can connect your feet to your opponent, you can base, you can push with your hands, you can pull. So again, a good example of the three joint rule, and you'll see people say this a lot, 
you know, one thing, just a, a little hack to make your jujitsu better. If you can prevent your opponent's feet from touching the floor or another surface and just have them kicking air, that's almost always a good thing. And the three joint rule is the reason why, because if you take that connection with the ground or with the surface away, the end of that joint, whether it be the hand or the foot basically becomes useless. So just bear in mind the three joint rule, when you were talking about controlling joints, that doesn't necessarily mean you physically have hands on that joint. There can be a lot of other ways, whether it be stapling to a surface in the right way or just letting them dangle their, the end of the lever up in the air. Or in the case of uh, double trouble, you actually control one joint by controlling the other one. There's a lot of different ways to control a joint that don't always look obvious at first. So just something to think about as you're trying to apply this to your game. Downstream effects are real. It's also why posture and head control are so important, right? If you turn somebody's head away from you, suddenly they can't turn into you. And by virtue of that, all your other joints become much less useful. Yeah. Yeah. Head control. I mean, man, that's a totally different topic. I mean, of course, the three joint rule doesn't really apply to the head. Attacking the head is a lot simpler. Basically, if you have control of someone's head, it's good. It's a lot simpler than attacking a limb. Most definitely. But like what I was thinking in my mind of this, like one of the ways I demonstrate side control and like why it's important to like get a good cross face is if you just take your finger and you push their chin away and turn their face away from you, they suddenly can't bridge into you anymore. And I know that's not explicitly the three joint rule, but just in the same sense that if you prevent them from using gravity by taking their feet off the mat, right? Then if you control this one small part of the human body, there are downstream effects. Just like if I turn your head away from you, there's very, very little you can do in terms of turning into me. So amazing, man. Well, any closing thoughts on this? I mean, I think this was a fantastic chat, but is there anything else you wanted to add that we didn't get into here? Oh, I had a blast. I thought that, so I had a blast. I don't have anything to add other than I think your explanation of the three joint rule is really valuable. I'm definitely going to start incorporating it into my explanations. And I always appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. I always appreciate having you here, man. Why don't we plug some stuff? If people want to come train with you or follow you on social, how do they go about doing that? We love visitors at Bellingham BJJ. Our schedule's online at bellinghambjj.com. We're about an hour from Vancouver, BC, about an hour and a half from Seattle. So uh, please come out and train. We're going to have a great time. Our fifth anniversary is this May. I'm going to have a bunch of awesome black belts in for like a whole week. And so we've got a bunch of seminars coming in. Margot Ciccarelli's coming in. Junio Casio, some podcast guests of yours are coming in in the spring. And then we'll have the mighty David Porter back in May. So uh, people are welcome anytime. And you can always follow us to find out what we got going on uh, on Instagram at BellinghamBJJ at Facebook.com slash BellinghamBJJ. And, uh, but our, our website's BellinghamBJJ.com and our schedule's there. So come anytime you're in town. But if you want to come to help set up a celebrate our five-year anniversary in downtown Bellingham, that'll be the first week of May. Amazing. Well, as I always do, my friend, I will put those links in the show notes. Uh, I'll also throw some links to some tangentially related resources there. So we've got an article, like I said, on the three-joint rule. I'll, I'll link that across. Um, I'll also put a link into, for those who don't know, Jeff actually did a premium series with us quite a while ago about creating gym culture. I mean, one of the things, Jeff, that I think you're probably best known for is just your approach towards building a positive and inclusive jujitsu gym culture. I know we have a ton of coaches and aspiring coaches listening to this, so definitely recommend checking that out if you haven't already. I guess that's as good a time as any to plug our stuff. Everything we make lives on bjjmentalmodels.com. That includes um, the free podcast. 
getting close to 300 hours of educational content there. The free newsletter, an extremely popular resource, arguably more popular than the podcast, um, is also available there for free. That's also how you sign up for premium. For those who don't know, uh, BJJ Mental Models Premium is how we float the boat, how I pay the bills. And the reason why I'm not subjecting you to Manscaped ads and all of that stuff, it's because our premium subscribers pay for everything. So in terms of what that is, if you're not familiar, we've got a massive course library of uh, just some incredible resources from coaches such as Jeff, of course, uh, Rob Bernacki, John Thomas, Rafael Lovato Jr., Claudio Duvall. It's just an amazing resource, very different from anything else. Um, think of kind of like a masterclass, but for jujitsu is the way I like to describe it. Perhaps even better, you can get direct coaching from our coaches, including many world champions like Dominica Oblanite is on there. Brianna St. Marie is on there. Uh, we've got a coaching team of over 10 world-class black belts right now. I definitely recommend signing up if you haven't already. I'm just going to kind of go a little bit above and beyond here and just talk about this a bit because I'm always told I need to plug this stuff harder. I don't like to chill, but... Uh, this is kind of the only place I talk about this. I got four messages today from different people. One of them was a person in our group who asked, how do you explain to someone that you've been getting better coaching from someone who isn't your main coach? Like you've been getting help from a large group of people who actually understand you better than your coach does. And this person is referring to BJJ Mental Models Premium and the coaching network that we've got. I mean, again, despite your coach's best efforts, right? A lot of the time they're in there. And there's a room of 30 plus students and you're going to get a few seconds of direct coaching time every class, even if you've got the best coach in the world. It's not a knock against your coach to look for supplemental resources. And that's something that we provide. Uh, again, like I said, another message I just got today as of this recording, I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years and finally joined premium. Your content has been extremely helpful in my jujitsu journey so far. Another one. Thanks for checking in. The subscription has been paying off in dividends so far. I'm still pretty much a newbie, but I'm definitely going to continue on this path. And I love the various aspects that have allowed me a new viewpoint on not just martial arts, but interacting with life in general. Another person mentioned that I think one of the biggest draws to the premium and coaching is the chance to have so many amazing athletes give direct feedback. So again, I, that's four pieces of feedback I got today alone. So please, if you haven't already considered it, I definitely recommend helping me pay the bills, <laughs> uh, and also getting some amazing value for yourself. There's a seven-day free trial, so please check it out at bjjmentalmodels.com. Link will also be in the show notes as well. But thanks for bearing with me and listening to my little advertisement there. And Jeff, big thanks to you, man. I always love these chats. I was looking for a way to tie this one into pro wrestling again, and I guess the one thing that we could say is, I mean, Kurt Angle's ankle lock finisher is a classic example of the three-joint rule in action, right? Because he starts off just trying to basically do an uncontrolled toehold, and sometimes that works, but a lot of the time people spin out. But when Kurt drops down and grapevines the leg and locks the hip and the knee, it's over every time, right? So Kurt Angle, big believer in the three-joint rule. So Steve, you may not be comfortable promoting yourself, and I'm very comfortable promoting you because I really believe in what BJJ Metal Models is doing. And I've seen myself, the community of coaches that are active, and just a ton of really brilliant jujitsu minds, some of which you mentioned and others who are not world famous world champions, but are just incredible coaches. As a head coach myself, I always want my students to get better. And so I encourage them to go out and learn from other supplemental sources, because if someone explains something in a different way that resonates with you better, I want that for you. And you've put together a great community with lots of brilliant jujitsu folks that can help people get better. Second, if you are a, a gym owner, or if you're somebody trying to start your own program, when we did the culture series, I put together a Google doc just for BJJ mental models listeners that has all my, uh, curriculum resources, my culture resources, my videos, all the stuff that I use 
uh, to run my introductory programs. And I'll give that to y'all for free if you are BJJ Metal Models premium subscribers. So if you're interested and you're hearing this, just email me at jeff at bellinghambjj.com or send me a message on Instagram noting that you're a premium subscriber. I will message it right to you. We all should be interested in raising the level of the community. And I really, really believe that BJJ Metal Models is doing that. And speaking of raising the level of the community and excellence of execution, primary progenitor of the three-joint rule is no doubt Bret Hart, because if the sharpshooter doesn't control three joints on a limb, I don't know what does. Absolutely. I will be honest. I have successfully applied the sharpshooter in a jujitsu role. I mean, it's a great feeling because I think it was Craig Jones who said something to the effect of, like, tapping someone is great, but if you can tap someone with some bullshit... That's like next level, right? And let me tell you, man, if you tap someone with a sharpshooter, that's like a permanent emotional scar you're leaving on them, right? That's more than just winning one round. No, most definitely. When we train together, I'll bring you a hot pink singlet and you can uh, repeat the performance. I'll I'll bring the music too. So it just plays that Bret Hart screeching guitar riff as soon as I walk into the gym. (laughs) Yeah, you know, people think that we have security cameras because in case we get robbed, we have security cameras in case I hit a sharpshooter on somebody. Awesome, man. Well, thanks a lot. Um, I am always glad to have you here, man. I like I said, I think this is one of the one of the more amazing chats we've had in a while. I just love these like deep dive technical educational nerd conversations in jujitsu. This is the thing that gets me excited about the art. It's my favorite thing about it, man. And you're one of the best speakers on the topic. So thanks again for coming by. Me too, Steve. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Always welcome. Thanks to the listeners as well. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care.